everyone. I'm Charlie Sloves. And I'm Dave Jagler. And welcome to Curly W Live from the Booth. Every episode, we talk about some of the greatest games and moments in Nationals history with insights from our broadcast, both on and off the air. We'll also answer some of your questions if you send them to us at nationalsradio at nationals.com or reach out to us with a direct message at NatsRadio on Twitter, and we'll answer your questions at the end of every episode. Curly W Live from the Booth is presented by GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to save on car insurance and homeowner's insurance. Visit GEICO.com and see how much you can save. GEICO, proud partner of the Washington Nationals. And recently, we had the chance to hold a question and answer Zoom call with some of our national season plan holders. There were some great questions, and we wanted to share some of our favorites with you. First question is from Doug Swanson. He wants you guys to think back to Dodgers game five. What were you thinking about at two specific moments? At the end of the ninth, what were you thinking about the Nats' chances? And right before Kendrick's at bat, what were your thoughts and emotions with the bases loaded? Well, I felt great about their chances because uh, we, we were very, very surprised. And we, we talked about this in our, in our podcast that we did about the NLDS. Uh, kind of a funny story. There's, there's monitors because you can't see the Dodger Stadium bullpen very well from our vantage point. And when the Nationals tied the game in the eighth inning on the home runs, uh, they survived the bottom of the eighth inning. And so now the game's tied going to the ninth or in the bottom of the eighth inning, the Dodgers are batting. And I look up at the monitor and you're expecting to see Kenley Jansen warming up. And he was. And then alongside him was Joe Kelly. And, and I saw that Joe Kelly was warming up, but Kelly had pitched poorly earlier in the series and his couple of appearances. And so I didn't even say on the air that Joe Kelly was warming up because I thought I'd sound like an idiot saying that Joe Kelly's, he's not coming into the game. This is Kenley Jansen's time. Well, not only did Joe Kelly come in for the ninth inning, he stayed in the game for the 10th inning. So at, at that point, going into the 10th inning, I, I felt very confident. You know, Kelly got through the bottom of the order in, in, the, uh, in the ninth inning, but in the 10th inning, he was facing the meat of the order. And I kind of said to myself, going to this inning, if Eaton gets on base, they're going to score. And, of course, Eaton worked a great at bat, as he always did in those spots. He drew a walk. Rendon hits the double off the wall, off the bat. That one looked like it might have a chance to go, but it, it hits the wall, kind of wedges there in the padding. It's an automatic double, second and third. And then you're figuring, okay, well, maybe he's, you know, Dave Roberts is going to match up, bring in the lefty, Kolarik, who had been you know, kind of kryptonite for Juan Soto in that series. Well, no, they, they elect to intentionally walk Soto for Howie Kendrick. And at that point, I mean, my confidence level was through the roof that in some way, somehow, Kendrick was going to get at least a fly ball to give you a sacrifice fly in the lead uh, because he's, he's that professional a hitter. And then when the ball left the bat, you knew the Nationals were going to have a lead. The only question was, would it carry out of the ballpark and be a real big lead? And ultimately, that was a, a signature moment. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I was calling the bottom of the eighth inning when you got my attention to look up at the monitor because we could only see the bullpen, the mound to the right, which was where Kenley Jansen was. And Joe Kelly was out of our view. <laughs> and I hit my... Why would he even be in our view? <laughs> see, this little, this little switch here is what we call our cough switch, or it kills our microphones. And we each have one of these on our headsets in the booth. And so I hit mine, and then you hit yours. And he said, well, I didn't want to say Joe Kelly was jumping with Joe Kelly warming up, because I, I, no I didn't want to believe that. <laughs> an idiot. And then, <laughs> then he pitches the ninth inning, the bottom of the order. And, you know, between inning breaks, before the 10th inning, we thought for sure Kenley Jansen's coming in to start that inning. So we were just really stunned 
And so was Kenley Jansen, for that matter, about 56,000 in Dodger Stadium. That Kenley Jansen, who had been now warming up since the eighth inning on and off, just stood there, wasn't even throwing. And I think in stunned amazement that he wasn't brought into the game. And eventually when he was... It was 7-3, to three, and after the Grand Slam, and after another man reached base, which was, at that point, stunning. So Jonathan wants both of you to explain the Trey Turner call in Game 6 of the World Series. Well, uh, you have that 45-foot uh, box that goes from halfway to first base to first base, where the base runner is supposed to get over on the right side of the line, in essence, in foul ground and run to first base so that the catcher or pitcher, whoever would feel the ball right near the foul line, would have a straight, clear path to throw to the first baseman. And if the runner is in fair territory and gets hit with the throw, it's under the umpire's discretion as to whether he can rule him out. And in Trey Turner's case, uh, on, on a ball that he put in play and is out in front of home plate and has to head to first base, you're going to be in fair territory. Dave, by the time he gets into foul ground, he's almost to first base when a bad throw, an errant throw for the first baseman having to reach into the runner, first baseman's glove and the ball basically hit Turner as his foot is about to land on the bag, and the umpire uses his dis discretion to say, well, he was in fair territory. Well, when you're that close to the bag, the entire base is in fair territory. It's on the line. So you'd have to come back from foul territory to fair to touch the base. And that's right about when Turner in midair with his foot about to come down. You have the interference of the ball and the glove and all of that at the same time. And to me, that should have been a no call. That should have been a no call whatsoever. Yeah, I think if you look at the way the rule is written, Turner was in violation of the rule with where he was running. Now, that doesn't make it a good rule. It's a horrible rule the way it's written because it makes no sense for a runner, as Charlie said, to have to basically make an arc into foul ground and then get back into fair territory, fair territory to touch the base. But what my contention would be, and, and agreeing with Charlie on that, is that Turner basically had cleared the reach of the first baseman and, was, and had beaten the throw and was touching the bag as Gurriel's glove reached in and hit him. So to me, he, he had already beaten the play and therefore, that should overrule the fact as to where he ran. And, and just the, why the, the rule is so bothersome to me is, number one, it makes, the, it makes the runner run that way. But in essence, it rewards a bad throw by the defense. Because if, if Peacock makes a good throw, the ball never comes close to hitting Turner. So in essence, you're rewarding the defense for making a bad play. I thought with the – I mean, there have been other controversial times where that rule has been applied. I thought maybe the grand stage of that happening – would get them to, to investigate or change this rule. But with all the rule changes we talked about in spring training when it happened earlier in, in March, we never heard that one. We never heard, you know, they've, they've changed roster sizes and they've, they've changed the number of batters that a relief pitcher has to face, but they haven't changed that rule. And, and I was hoping that he would have a second Trey Turner rule because Trey Turner had one other rule named after him when he was traded uh, from San Diego and he had to wait, he had to play in their organization uh, for a time until he joined the Nationals. I thought they would maybe – uh, that this would change. Maybe they would have changed it had the Nationals lost. But to their credit, they didn't, they didn't get down. Rendon hits the home run, and it becomes a mere footnote and not, not something that determined the outcome of the series. Here's why I don't really – why the rule makes no sense to me. You have a different rule for the batter running to first than you have for the runner running from first to second, second to third, third to home. Because you're allowed to veer out, but you're supposed to run in a straight line 
when you're going first to second, but you can't if it's a basin in the gap and you're making the turn. But it's always the way we've looked at it. For for instance, a first baseman, if he's trying to turn a 3-6-3 double play and he's holding the runner and that runner is in his line of sight to the shortstop taking the throw at second base, that's not on the runner. That's on the fielder to throw around him, step to the inside or throw over the runner. Because if the throw hits the runner, they don't call that runner out going first to second. So why are they calling that runner? And there's no line and box that he has to necessarily stay in. So why, they make, why is that a rule between home to first? They should make us commissioner. We change this rule in a heartbeat. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't exist for any of the other three possibilities, first to second, second to third, or third to home. Baseball is not a perfect game. That's why we love it. Next question is for both of you. Uh, what was your favorite postseason moment? Go ahead, Dave. Well, I'll I'll take the uh, the Kendrick home run at Dodger Stadium just for from a, a professional side. When you when you do this for a living and you do play by play, you you know you want to call great moments. And and uh, you know, obviously we you know Charlie and I split the play by play, and he does the ninth inning. So the majority of the time he's going to get the the last out in the no hitter or the walk off home run and let and then we alternate an extra inning so the chance to call you know howie's grand slam to me immediately leapfrogs by by a ton any other call i've made in, in any other sport in any other time of, of my career so selfishly <laughs> uh, I, I love that moment number one but also you know recognizing and i tried to capture it in the call what it meant for the franchise because you know we, we've been there through all the the heartbreaks of of all the game fives at home where they had leads and chances to to get over that hump and to to finally when that ball left the ballpark you knew that they were they had cleared that that hurdle the hurdle that they had never been past to, to get to a national league championship series what it meant for what it meant to him with what he's come back from missing most of the 18 season uh, and coming back and what he means to that to that clubhouse his veteran presence he was the right guy to do it and and that's why that moment was number 1 for me and as you said getting the chance to call last outs of uh, of series in the the wild card game and uh, the NLCS you know walk off home runs great moments throughout the regular season and other postseason years but you know i don't think anything tops getting to be at the microphone to call the last pitch the last out of the nationals winning the world series that's something you dream about something that you you'd never forget uh, just being able to be in that position and and uh, be a part of that as it leads into the celebration. Next question is from Steve. Uh, for both of you, did you ever anticipate that the visiting team would win every game in the seven-game series? Also, why do you think that happened? Well, well I think there was, there was a good, you know, one thing that really worked out to the Nationals' favor for their road games is they had an American League caliber lineup. I mean, so often as, as the American League, you know, in the last 10 to 15, 20 years has had the upper hand in the World Series, National League teams aren't necessarily built for American League play. They don't have that DH, the extra bat. But the Nationals had such a deep bench, quality guys. Davey Martinez didn't have to choose who to sit. I mean, he could he could play Howie at second and have Cabrera come off the bench as the DH or vice versa, as he did most of the time. And then you knew that Zim was going to be in the lineup every game. So the Nationals had a really deep lineup one through nine in the American League ballpark. So so to me, uh, that that really gave them – a leg up. Now, why the Nationals played so poorly at home, uh, I don't know. I mean, you, I think you have to give some credit to, to the team on the other side. They were a pretty good team. Uh, but I think com coming home two to nothing, I kind of felt that, that I wasn't going to be going back to Houston. The Nationals are riding high at that point. They had won eight straight games going back to game four in the Dodgers series. 
So that was a stunning turn of momentum. Uh, but to their credit, I think even going back three to two, when we got the sense on the flight to Houston that that Scherzer was he was moving around that plane pretty good, you know, about 24 hours after getting the injection uh, in in the neck. I'm like, going, okay, uh, Str- love Strasburg in six. Uh, Max is going to be ready for seven. I was very confident going to Houston that the Nationals could find a way to pull it off. But uh, going into a series, no, you never would have anticipated that. It's never been done in any series in baseball basketball or hockey, any best of seven series. No one's ever gone seven for seven on the, on the road games. But, uh, you know, I think baseball more so than, than, the, than the other sports, home field advantage isn't necessarily the biggest thing. It's, it's how you play, who's pitching, and uh, you, you can take that act on the road if you've got quality pitching. Yeah, no one could have anticipated after the way the Nationals played in the first two games of the series, Dave, that they, their offense would be basically shut down in the games at Nationals Park. They had so much trouble uh, getting a base hit with men in scoring position. And you wondered, could they pick it back up for game six and seven? But it kind of went from like game two to game six, as if games three, four, and five for the offense never happened. Uh, They hung in there. They played the style of baseball again, where they were able to come from behind against really good pitching. Uh, No panic. He hits at the right time. Uh, You got some great performances on the mound, great effort out of the bullpen in in both games six and seven. But no, no one could predict anything that really happened in that series. I mean, even even down to game seven, one of the things we talked about, could the road team win every game of the World Series? It certainly would be uh, historic, and it turned out to be that way. Uh, but uh, nobody could foresee that happening. We may never see that happen again. We mentioned jumping from game two to game six. When I when I bought the, the seven uh, DVD set, a uh, Blu-ray set of the World Series, they sent games three, four, and five. I'm like, why bother? Why did you say, <laughs> I'm never going to watch these games? Just send me one, two, six, and seven. I don't need these middle three games. They never happened. I don't remember remember much about those middle three games. I I would have traded those games for the games from the NLDS, the wild card game. Absolutely. The NLCS, first three games. Next question is from Ken Rosenberg's 10-year-old son. He asked, (laughs) for both of you, how do you feel or how did you feel when Soto hit the double in the wild card game? Uh, the base hit in the bottom of the eighth inning, the the single that scored two, and then the error on the right fielder. I mean, that was that was incredible. I mean, what what a situation against one of the top left-handed relievers, maybe the best in all of baseball as a left-handed reliever, most dominating the past couple of years, and for the Nationals to do what they did in that inning, and you know Soto to bear down and get that big base hit, and then uh, the error in right field allows the Rendon to score the third run, and the Nationals had the lead. It was an amazing turn of events because you, you know you're facing one of the best on the mound with six outs to go down in that wild card game, Dave. They were not in a good spot going to that bottom of the eighth inning. Yeah, I mean, and it all happened so fast that that the, you have the hit, and then there's the the explosion of, of noise, and then the you know if you if you go on the scale of one to ten, the noise was a ten when the crowd realized that Soto had the base hit, and then when they realized that Grisham had misplayed the ball, I think it went to a twelve. I mean, they got even louder if that was possible from the the immense volume that they had when he first had the hit, and then Soto you know runs into the out to make sure that uh, you know the third run can score. And so just like that, the inning is over rather than, you know, he gets the hit, you take the lead, next batter bats, and it kind of calms down. All, this, all of a sudden, the top of the ninth inning is there, and the top of the ninth just flew by. And I know Milwaukee had a hit in that inning. They had one on, and, and ultimately, the, you know, Hudson gets the three outs. But that top of the ninth inning just flew by, uh, and it seemed like, you know, in a blink of an eye, they went from down by two to winning. And for us, for me personally, uh, 
whenever the Nationals were in a scenario to, to clinch, uh, and you did the same thing, but uh, I would I would change uh, in in the back of the booth before the game was over because I go right down to the field after the last out, and so the same gear that I wore when they clinched the wild card spot, same pants, same kind of golf pullover that you don't mind getting wet, you know, change your shoes, uh, you know, take your phone out of your pocket. You don't want anything that you that has any value at all to be on your body when you're going to be in a clubhouse celebration. And so as soon as as soon as Soto had the hit and they made the third out, I'm like. Oh, I, I got to change. And so I was scrambling to, to do a little wardrobe change in the two minute break between the, the eighth inning and the top of the ninth inning, and then get the headset back on to, to be on the air with you for the top of the ninth inning and get it, you know, the jack of all things are engineered and handing me the, the wireless microphone so I can run down as soon as, as soon as they get the third out. So it was, it was pandemonium. And literally that top of the ninth inning went by in a second and a half. It seemed like it, didn't it? And the, the crowd really never let down after that eighth inning. It was just one continuous roar, it seemed, right through the top of the ninth inning and right into the celebration of them winning that wild card game and eventually into a celebration on the field and uh, into the clubhouse. And yes, the, that was the second of the uh, parties of us getting wet, right? First, there was the wild card clinching. That was number two. And uh, we were pros by the time it was over in terms of uh, wardrobe change and adjustment. Next question is from Ruth Miller and either one of you can take this. What three words would you use to describe Steven Strasburg other than MVP? Other than MVP? Um, he said three words, huh? He was, he was definitely Mr. Clutch performer in the postseason for me. Uh, he might have been MVP of the entire postseason all the way through with the, the performances in the wild card game in relief and his starts thereafter. He was tremendous uh, up to his final moments in game six. How about limitless potential fulfilled or something along those lines? Because when he burst out of the scene in 2010, I mean, this was the expectation of what he would bring to, to a franchise when the Nationals drafted him number one. And it, it was really unfair to Steven the attention that he received when he came into the big leagues because it was, it was unprecedented. You know, when uh, he made his first start at Nationals Park, obviously was sold out. The next night, you know, the team was struggling in those years. There were 20,000 people in there. And then we go to Cleveland for a second start. In the, in the first two games of the series on a Friday and Saturday night, there's 16,000 people. The Sunday day game, it's a sellout. There's, I never forget walking to the booth in Cleveland through the concourse. There's a kiosk with Strasburg merchandise only in the, in the Cleveland Indian Stadium. I, so, I, I mean, the, the, the potential that was thrust upon him, this is, well, he's supposed to be this, 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 and this. Well, you know, a lot of people, you know, threw a lot of labels on him with, with the shutdown and the different injuries. Well, he only had one postseason win. So everything that was thrust upon him that this is what he's supposed to be, that's what he did in, in 2019. Next question is from Steve Vick uh, for both of you. What are your thoughts on why the Nationals did so well against the Cardinals during that series? I think a lot of that had to do with they, they were on a roll after beating the Dodgers. There was a lot of emotion. Their pitching was tremendous. And I think their scouting report from their veteran people who were in Atlanta watched that series despite, you know, the Cardinals scoring 10 runs in the first inning of that uh, fifth game and beating the Braves. They had a game plan on how to pitch to the Cardinals and just basically shut them down, snuffed them out in that series. And I think once, I think Dave, once they got ahead in that series, two games to none, I, th I think the Cardinals were toast. Yeah, you know, the one thing about the, the Nationals organization, and we see it, you know, we, we, I just, it was funny, we we're doing a game in, uh, in, in spring training in Jupiter, 
this past March, and you look to the booth to our right, and in the in the in the Nationals GM booth, you have Jack McKeon, uh, you have Bob Schaefer, and you have Dan Jennings. And what do they have combined? Like over a hundred years of baseball experience, you know, well over a hundred years of baseball experience between the three of them. You have guys like that, uh, plus the Ron Rizzies of the world, all these veteran scouts in the organization who are watching all these postseason games uh, with their eyeballs. And so they, that's the way the nationals are, you know, a blue blood scouting organization. That's how they're, that's how they're going to go about it. And so they had a game plan that was absolutely perfect uh, to pitch to their hitters and then not only that, they have the pitchers who can execute the game plan to perfection. A guy like Anibal Sanchez, well, uh, let's put the ball here. Okay, I'll put the ball there. Max Scherzer, I want the pitch here. I'm going to hit my spot. Strasburg's going to hit his spot. So you, you, you put that, that uh, stellar game plan with the guys who can execute the plan, and you shut down what was a, a good offense. I mean, that, that was a complete uh, thorough clinic on pitching. Yeah, you have your advanced scout, Jim Cuthbert, and he told me he was, he'd look around and see – the guys you mentioned, Jack McKeon, his son Casey McKeon might be there. Bob Boone, who's, who could forget more baseball than 10 people in their lifetime. He was, scout, he was scouting the Yankees, though. He wasn't scouting the Cardinals. Early, early, right, at that point, yep. He was, he was with the American League. But when you get these guys together, and, mm-hmm. you know, Jim felt like, well, I've got over 20 years, and I, I'm not even close to the experience of these guys for, you know, sitting there and and then they get together after and talk about what they've seen and able to combine all that information into a plan for them to use. And, uh, you know, you could say it worked to perfection with the Cardinals, but it worked with the Astros too. Yeah. Eyes on scouting beat uh, defeated algorithms. The way I look at it. I like it. Next question is from Rich Kaplan uh, for both of you. Uh, Did AJ Hinch make a mistake not to bring in Garrett Cole in the late innings of game seven? Well, yes. there are a lot of people who would think so. <laughs> uh, we couldn't figure out why he was warming up as, as long as he was. And A.J. Hinch addressed it in his press conference after the World Series saying he was only coming into the game if they had a lead. And how many times have we heard, you know, managers say something like that? But, you know, if you never get a lead, it's a shame to leave a guy like that in the bullpen. And They had know, the lead. <laughs> right. At two to one. But he didn't go to him then for Granke. I guess he didn't want to bring him in mid-inning. He brings in Will Harris, of course, who's now a national. But, you know, Will Harris had pitched a ton. And, you know, he had he had said at one point that he was kind of gassed after after uh, game five and still pitched in game six and in game seven. Now, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say that the pitch he made to Kendrick was a mistake pitch. I mean, nobody could hit that pitch for a home run, a right-handed hitter off the right field foul pole. That, you know, it wasn't like he left a, a, an off-speed pitch up over the middle of the plate or threw a fastball down the middle. That was a pitcher's pitch, and he hit for a home run. So, I mean, can you say it was a mistake bringing in Will Harris at that point? But every everybody who was there thought that if he warmed up, that he was going to come into the game and he warmed up several times as uh, during the, the zoom uh, press uh, zoom gathering with all the players where, where Zim kept saying, Hey, he's still warming up. He's warming up again. And he's saying, he's saying the Yankees are mad at him. The Yankees are going to say, oh, don't let him do that. So that, yeah, I think that that's the, uh, what the players thought about that. They were shocked. Um, you know, for me, some of, some of them didn't realize till they saw the replay because they're focused on what they're not really looking at the bullpen. Didn't realize that he warmed up for that long or that many got up that many times in Game Seven. For me, the the first guess was 
taking Granky out of the first place, no matter who, who you're bringing in, because he was not at a high pitch count. And that was, that was the difference to me for the Nationals, getting Granky out of the game, a, a pitcher who uh, ne- nearly threw a complete game shutout against them early in the year with Arizona, if not for a rain delay. And they couldn't touch him in games in game seven until Rendon hits the home run. They could barely get the ball past the pitcher against Cranky. So to me, you could have brought in Garrett Cole at that point instead of Will Harris, and the Nationals would have settled for that. Anybody but Cranky at that point. Uh, again, they had a plan for him maybe to go four or five innings, and Cranky loused up that plan by pitching so well. And as soon as he, there was the first hint of trouble, they got him out of the game, and that turned out to be a huge edge for the Nationals. And I think that was a difference in, in uh, starting pitcher philosophy between Davey Martinez and maybe A.J. Hinch in the World Series and maybe in the postseason. Uh, you know, during the regular season, you probably protect your starting pitchers a little bit more because you're always thinking about the next start and the next start and the next start. But what we saw in the World Series was Davey, you know, the way Anibal Sanchez was pitching against the Cardinals. Normally, maybe he wouldn't have gone as deep into that game, but he had a no-hitter going. Uh, but I, I felt like if he was going to stretch his starters, this was it. There was no, there's no tomorrow. These are your last performances of the year. These are your big money pitchers. These are your starting pitchers. If you're not going to lean on them a little bit more to get a little bit more out of them then, then when would you? Yeah, and that was all through the postseason. I mean, did it work every time? No. I mean, remember Corbin had the rough outing in game three against the Dodgers at home in that series, but yet he went right back to him in relief in game five and then did yeah. it again in St. Louis and did it again in the World Series. So, you know, he leaned heavily on him. I'm going to use my best guys, and I'm going to go with them as long as I can. So that, that worked out very well for Davey. You know, and in the end, when you think back to Patrick Corbett's performances in the postseason, his relief performances were were maybe bigger than his start. Certainly, you know, the three innings that he gave you that were spectacular in Game 7, mm-hmm. no one will ever forget that. Next question is from Nats fan 132 um, How much different was the 2019 culture of the team versus other Nats teams? They seem to have more fun than any team that I can recall in my 40 years of being a baseball fan. How much did that group's attitude make a difference in winning it all? Dave, I don't know if they had more fun than any other team that we've seen, uh, but certainly it was more outwardly shown in the dugout and, and on the field emotionally than probably any other team that we've seen. Because we've talked about some of the guys who were on other teams when they were winning, when when you had the Mark DeRosa in 2012. There, there were clubhouse characters and guys who tried to keep a team loose. Uh, but I don't know that any other team that, that we've been involved with, the Nationals, showed it more displayed more of it uh, during games in the dugout on the field than what we saw, of course, with the, with the antics of Anibal Sanchez and Gerardo Parra. Well, but I think I, you got to give a lot of credit to that. I think they needed it. I mean, to, to overcome what they did, I mean, the, the business-like approach maybe wouldn't have been the right formula at 19 and 31 to dig out of it. So, you know, you had to have a little bit of a, of a screw list and say, why not us? Well, you know, let's, let's go out today and, and have fun and go 1-0 today. So I, I think that this particular a group of players, you needed that kind of camaraderie uh, to dig out of the hole that you did. And I think that played well for them in the postseason. There was no you know, panic or, or sign of getting tight when they were down in all those elimination games because they had done the same thing over the course of the regular season. So I think it was a special group in that way. And I know if you were, if you were a, a fan of baseball but didn't have a dog in the fight and you're watching that, You'd be you'd be attracted to what the Nationals were doing. You said, man, that team looks like they they have a lot of fun playing together. I'm going to root for that team, and and we've talked about this in other forums and in other places. 
Uh, as this team was facing elimination, I, I would always have this gnawing feeling that I don't want this team to lose because I want them to play more together. The, the season shouldn't end tonight. This team deserves to play more games together. And I'm happy that this is the team that, that ultimately gets to celebrate a championship because as we saw in that Zoom call, the, the camaraderie is not going to fade with the passing of time. And in 2029, when this team comes back for the 10-year reunion, in 2039 for the 20-year reunion, this team is going to have just as much fun in those moments as they did in 2019. And they're going to get together, and they're going to swap stories, and they're going to talk, and it's going to feel like not even a day has passed since 2019. So that group will be linked forever. Yeah, and it's interesting, uh, Davey Martinez, to tell the story about Gerardo Parra coming over in May and played a lot when the team had a lot of injuries. And then when they got healthy, the playing time wasn't there as much. It was more of a pinch hitter. And then he went into a funk, and he really struggled. Uh, Dave, he, he, he did not do well as a pinch hitter. Uh, he, he had a tough stretch during the month of August and even into September late in the year before he finally found his timing again. And Davey had to say, you know, I know you're struggling. You're not playing much. You're not hitting. But I, I can't lose what you bring to the table every day emotionally in the dugout and in the clubhouse. So I know while you're in the, and, and baseball players, when they struggle, it, I mean, it, it creeps into everything else. When they struggle to hit, he said, I know you're scuffling, but I need everything else that you bring. This team needs you. Next question is from Ken for both of you. At what point in the season did you really think that we were going to win the World Series? <laughs> oh, my. Um, you know, there was more or less, we, we talked about, you know, the, when they hit the four home runs in San Diego, Dave, and they started to have some magical things happen and turning around games. And then, you know, into September when it looked like they had a really good shot to make the wild card, but, uh, but by no means a sure thing when you were battling against other teams uh, that, that were in the hunt. And then there were several, they just happened to be in a good spot. You come from behind and you win that game against the Mets with the Suzuki walk-off home run at the bottom of the ninth and you score seven runs on seven hits and and beat the Mets closer in the end I mean that was unlike anything any comeback that that we have seen in Nationals history and uh and then you got to the last week of the season they're in a pretty good spot and they they wipe out the Phillies in a five-game series and sweep the Indians eliminate both of those teams and you know I just felt like then you know uh this could be really interesting the wild card is one game and anything could happen but I felt like if they got past the wild card game the way they were playing that I, I thought they'd be on an even playing field at worst with whoever they played next. And next was the 106-win Dodgers after the Brewers. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always felt that with that rotation, if they could just get in, uh, that that would be uh, – they'd have a chance to be a, a World Series contender. And and I think we kind of sold ourselves on, you know, when this team's won the division, generally they've won the division by a comfortable margin and they didn't have to play meaningful games down the stretch. And so they had to kind of flip that switch when October came around. And, and oftentimes they had to sit around for four days in between the end of the regular season and then the start of the division series. So playing in the wild card game kept their momentum going and it, it forced them to, to really grind right to the end of the season after they clinched the playoff spot, then it was, well, we want the home game. So they really had to grind to the last weekend of the season. And then you have one day off, play the wild card game, and then you go out to LA. But you know, obviously it, to me, it came into clear focus when you, once you win the wild card game, you know, you, you've got to beat the Dodgers who are the big bully in the national league. And you've got the two Titans in the American league. I mean, once they knocked off the Dodgers, you're going, Man, this this team definitely can can win it all. Next question is question is from Steve. Uh, besides Nats Park, 
What is your favorite ballpark? And do the press facilities differ much from one park to another? Uh, second part of the question first, yes, they do in terms of uh, press food dining, proximity to the broadcast booth. There, there are a whole lot of underlying factors that we look at uh, when, we, when we're maybe making a judgment on how much we like uh, to work in a ballpark. Wrigley Field, best atmosphere on the road uh, for a lot of reasons, the history, the look of the park, the neighborhood, Wrigleyville, the smells of the the grills burning off the grease early in the morning before a day game when you get there. But the worst broadcast booth, and, and I would say they're on the lower end of press dining for sure, proximity to the booth is the closest. Up until the last two years, Dave, there, there was no elevator and you were lugging your stuff up five ramps. Much more difficult for the jack of all things to get the radio equipment to the broadcast booth. He still has to deal with a couple of flights of steps to get up there and then uh, you're, you're cramped in more than any other place. So that's, that's a mix. We, we love the atmosphere. We love the look of it, but the working conditions are certainly the worst. Philadelphia has the best ice cream. Um, staying in New York um, under normal conditions uh, leads to some of the best dining and uh, availability of just about anything, any time of day. Uh, I love Dodger Stadium from our vantage point and the uh, history of the ballpark. Uh, I think it, it has a great look to it. Also, worst public address system to deal with. <laughs> Blows your head off. Hopefully, that'll be different going forward with their their new sound system that they were installing uh, in anticipation uh, of a lot of improvements out of center field this year uh, because the All-Star game was due to be played there. Uh, we love going to St. Louis. Probably... Uh, we're not we're not on necessarily the press level. The broadcast booths are on the club level there, which leads us to some of the best food in all of Major League Baseball. And the only reason I, and I, I will hold a grudge when when I, when I eat a bad meal. And we went to St. Louis in 2006, my first year. Their park opened, and in press dining, I had a mystery meat. And to this day, I don't know if I <laughs> ate chicken, beef, fish, pork, veal. I have no idea what it was, and I have never set foot in the press dining room. Since then, we're talking a 14-year streak. So I will hold a grudge. And so I, I go out on the club level and get the stir-fry station down the right field line. And there is a, a sandwich uh, station behind home plate. And there's a pizza salad uh, place a little bit up third base side. So, uh, yeah, if, if I get a bad meal, I'm going to hold a grudge. And, you know, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of ballparks fighting for 30th on the list as far as press dining. Uh, yeah, we, we could go through the whole culinary uh, preferences, but uh, St. Louis is not. Pre- we're talking about not press dining. That's yeah. that's right. why it's that's why it's uh, it's so good. Uh, so we're, we're making the choice to go out, and it's it's probably double the price of of what you'd spend in press dining. But uh, well, worth, well it. worth it. Yes, Seattle. We love uh, great city. We don't go there often enough um, until we play in the AL West, which would have been this year. Uh, great view, great city, great restaurants, great ballpark, best coffee in baseball there's no doubt there i'd say probably the lowest vantage point that we have um we don't go there a lot kansas city's pretty low i remember the last time we went there there was a there was a, a hole in the wall behind where my head was because i think someone had <laughs> moved their ball. head in a foul ball and, and hit right in that spot uh so so kansas city is a pretty good vantage point i wish we went there a little more often that, and that's a pr- that's a pretty underrated press dining but everyone's fighting for second place behind philadelphia so we have time for one more question And that question is from Marlene Koenig for Charlie and Dave. If you had to use one word to describe how you felt when Huddy got that last out. Elation. Euphoria. 
That was my first choice, and I switched. It starts with E. They're, I mean, they're cousins. They're, they're cousins. Yeah. Elation and euphoria. I would, those were both of those feelings. But a lot more words probably were flying through your head. Yeah. But, you know, for, you know honestly, for, for what we do, though, um, at least for me, it, it didn't really sink in till probably the, the flight home because immediately, you know, like, like we said, we, we still had another, you know, two hours to go on the, on the broadcast. Once the last out happens and you, you know, I'm, I'm scrambling down to the field. Um, and there, obviously there's a whole big, you know, it's just a massive humanity. It, it just keeps growing each round of the, the playoffs. So there's a, the massive people they're setting up the stage. You know, I, I'm trying to get interviews, uh, while you're holding things and talking up up in the booth, so we're trying to pick guys off one by one to get get interviews before the they actually have the trophy presentation. Then we carry the trophy presentation, and then we go down into the clubhouse. And you're trying to get a lot of the key players who are you know the big stars of the series, and they're getting pulled away to do uh, MLB Network and ESPN interviews. So uh, I mean, it, it was it was a hard grind there for about an hour and a half to to two hours worth of worth of work. And then you're, you know, you're, you're soaking wet, you go back up to the booth and, and we, we kind of did a little recap up there and, and played a highlight montage and then uh, went back to the hotel and it's like, man, man, did that, that just happen? And then when you wake up the next day after very little sleep, you realize, yeah, it did. The funny thing is we got back to the hotel and we're both soaking wet and there's a party at another hotel. <laughs> We had to get to. There were there were no cabs. Uh, we we literally had to change clothes and get there. And uh, we were about fifteen minutes from the curtain coming down on the on the, the best part of celebration at the other hotel. Well, and two, then two a.m. two a.m. curfew. In- yeah, there was a two. There was a two a.m. curfew, and literally everyone started rolling into the party about two a.m. They they shut down the bar and cost themselves. So much money, but let's just say that the people in a mood to celebrate were creative. Um, you know, a certain uh, guy who hit a big home run in 2012 uh, with long hair and a beard, he was creative as far as uh, procuring something to drink, and you know, different people went to the mini bar. So there were, you know, people had fun. And then some people were. BYOB. I was surprised. I don't know where it all came from. I don't know where it came. They had their own stash. Uh, it, it, but you know what? Uh, we, we've said this before. By that time, getting back to that hotel for that party, it was kind of like groups. It was not. A, it was a very subdued party. I think players were literally exhausted by that point because they celebrate, as you said, they celebrated on the field. They took their team picture. They had the stage ceremony. Then it was into the clubhouse, you know, for, for the champagne celebration. And it wasn't as long as the celebrations that we saw during uh, the NLCS and the, 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 league, the division series with the Dodgers or even the wildcard game or even clinching a postseason spot because it was, the, it was this next one and all the families were waiting and they knew it was a party at the hotel. They were they celebrated and it seemed like they were all then they went into the dining room guys were starving they they ate something before they showered and got dressed and left with their families and so by the time you had this this party at the at the the hotel the victory party it was kind of like groups of people sitting at tables <laughs> it, it it wasn't what you you thought it would be 
But then, of course, we know how the players celebrated on the plane back, the parade, after the parade, uh, a couple the of Capitals private, game. private celebrations <laughs> leading up to a few days later at the Capitals game and, uh, and then some. So while they were maybe subdued more than you would have expected that night after winning the World Series, they made up for it in the days to come. Yeah, they were pacing themselves. And the, and the way to complete the celebration circle is when, and I think about this every day, every day. is when we get back to Nationals Park and we raise that banner and we get the World Series rings in front of you folks who have been uh, with us uh, when this, this organization was number 30 out of 30. And you're here when they're number one out of 30. And, and I'm missing baseball so much. It hurts. We'll see what happens as far as, as getting this going. But I, I miss seeing, seeing all of you interacting with you at the, at the ballpark and just miss being around the game, talking about the game. Uh, the, the rhythm of my life is broken up because uh, we're missing baseball right now, but, but hoping that something soon will, will happen in that respect. But uh, thank you for, for your support and for, for listening to us uh, on the radio and um, you know, following the, the team as closely as you do. And again, we'll, we'll complete that celebration circle eventually, and it's going to be a heck of a moment when that happens. We do these kind of things uh, during rain delays when we take live phone calls and we answer emails and we answer tweets. And sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's two hours. A couple of years back, more than half the home games were affected by rain. And, you know, people say, oh, it's another rain delay. It's another rain delay. Uh, Dave, we would, we, would, we would accept a nice long rain delay right now if there was a ball game to go with it. Yeah, uh, sign me up for that right now. But uh, we'll, we'll be through this, and then we'll, we'll be there on the other side. We thank you guys for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed this with us, and we hope to get a chance to do it again and be back on the radio to bring you some baseball very soon. Have a good night, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Curly W Live from the booth, again presented by GEICO. Follow us at nationals.com slash Curly W Live, and we'll talk to you on the next Curly W Live from the booth.